Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Stack Overflow's developer survey results were released, and Elixir came in as number four among the most loved languages. This just comes in behind Rust, Clojure, and TypeScript. Have you guys seen this? Yeah, that's really cool. I remember it being on the survey, but like barely mentioned or not an option. Yeah, it was like a, you had to write it in. You remember? <laughs> <laughs> so we've come a long way. Yeah, in that same survey, it looks like Elixir was number three in highest paid languages. I kind of think that's because often when you hear about Elixir, it's not your first language. So it's probably like their third or their fourth. They are probably already experienced developers. I mean, in, in our case, we're hiring just senior Elixir developers. So I think that makes sense that it's a pretty high paid language, but it's also comforting, I guess. <laughs> the trend, I think, was that the, the functional ones were there as high as paying, right? I think that was the trend I saw. Yeah, so we have links to those in the show notes. So you can go explore and check out your other favorite languages and frameworks that you use. All right, some news for the NeoVim users out there. You'll be happy to hear that the recent PR adds TreeSitter support. TreeSitter, as a reminder, is a syntax parser. It's a progressive syntax parser, so it's supposed to be uh, really fast. And the support is for the Surface library, and it integrates uh, with Elixir. So that's really exciting news. In other Surface news, Marlu Saraiva, he wants... So he is the creator and maintainer of Surface library. He wants to get back to work on the Surface catalog. So Surface catalog is like a React storybook kind of feature where it allows you to visualize and see the different components, how they're styled for your project and kind of interact with them and see how they behave. And he says this might be a good opportunity to redesign the UI using Tailwind CSS. So I think that's cool. For me, it's just as a Tailwind user myself, it just lowers the bar for being able to pull in libraries like Surface and just have it be something that works natively with Tailwind. So have you guys heard of the 1% internet culture rule or the 1990 rule? No. No. 1% are creators, 9% are contributors, 90% are lurkers. Oh. So I'm in that 90% because I lurk in all of the Phoenix GitHub <laughs> issues and I never contribute. <laughs> because I lurk a lot, I noticed that somebody named Chris McCord said they're releasing Phoenix 1.6 this week. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. It was on an issue talking about, as you might expect, node issues, right, with SAS, and they're having a hard time with a phoenix.new project. And so Chris McCord chimed in and said, hey, you could fix that by uninstalling SAS, or you could just wait because I'm planning to release Phoenix 1.6 this week. So that's exciting. By the time of this recording, that means it might even be out already. That's exciting. Looking forward to that. And that's it for the news. Today's special guest is Marc-André Lafortune. Welcome, Marc. Thank you for having me. So I'm excited to talk to you. You did some recent pull request that was merged into Elixir that does some mix XREF improvements that we talked about previously in the news where you're helping to, you did some work that helps avoid recompilations. And I thought this would be an awesome time to kind of dig in a little deeper as to what this is and how we can use this as when this is released so that we can get the benefits in our own projects. Because I did see that Phoenix 1.6 was able to get some of these benefits that came out of this work. So before we jump into all that, though, I'd like to hear a little bit more about you. So where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? So I live in Montreal, in Quebec, the French part of uh, Canada. 
and uh, I've been programming for forever, basically. And uh, very recently, I decided it was more than time to actually dig into Elixir. So I just got a job programming Elixir, and uh, I love it. Congrats. So is that just a recent full-time now doing working in Elixir? Well, it's actually half-time, which was uh, the issue. So I said, okay, what's the best way to actually learn a language is, you know, I spent uh, three days doing some exorcism exercises, which was really, really fun. So, uh, you know, I did a one easy one. Okay, okay, I get the syntax. My, my tools are working. It's okay. One medium one. And then I did all the, the hard ones I thought were interesting. And I was like, okay, this, this is actually as cool as I thought it was going to be. So let's actually learn it for real. Let's, uh, let's try to find a job. So actually I sent four emails to companies looking for remote, uh, programmers and said, well, I've got exactly three days of experience with Elixir, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I'm otherwise a, a fairly rounded programmer and, uh, I would like to, uh, to work for you. And I got an offer out of it. So uh, I jumped on it. And uh, actually, I, I knew right away when I got the interview that uh, I wanted to work for them, but I kept my, uh, my options open. The remote part was not so much a problem anymore, right? Uh, given the, uh, the status of the world. But uh, finding a job for half time is actually very, still very challenging. So I don't know when or if that's ever going to change. So what languages were you using most recently before Elixir? So I fell in love in Ruby fairly early on uh, after that uh, very famous um, video from uh, DHH. The 15-minute blog? Yes, exactly. The, the, the original one, I was like, okay, that's, that sounds just so cool. And uh, then I realized that it, you know, Rails was great, but Ruby was just awesome. So uh, I started uh, programming uh, in Ruby mostly for fun. Then I, I dug really into it. I became a, a Ruby committer a little bit more than 10 years ago. And that's what I've been using uh, until, well, three, almost four months ago now. So you've, you've committed into Ruby core. What, what kind of problems were you solving in Ruby core? I'm just curious. What's happened was I'm very lazy. So <laughs> things that I don't like to do, I'm not going to do them. And at the time that was, that was way back when in, uh, Ruby 186, it was fairly complicated to install a newer Ruby version. I remember, yeah. <laughs> you know, that was before RBN and, and RVM. So I started wanting to use the new features of, of the Ruby language, but we're not necessarily wanting to install the new version. And I knew other people would want to install, not install the new version necessarily. So if I was to, to use a gem, it might be a hard requirement to, to use only the latest. So I started rewriting the new features of Ruby in Ruby, you know, because it's, it's very easy to patch the language itself, and then discovered bugs while implementing that. Then I started to report the bugs, fix the bugs, and uh, then I started writing Ruby specs, found more bugs, and <laughs> patched more bugs. And the rabbit hole goes deeper. <laughs> exactly. I have a math background also, so some of the, like the matrix library, for example, had a lots of uh, improvements that that could be done. So I became the committer for that. Wow. So that's how it started. 
So you mentioned Ruby 187, and I know that was like several generations ago at this point. Well, that's got to be 10 years at this point, right? Or more than that. It's probably for more like 13, 14 years. Yeah, 13 years. That's that's quite a while ago. And so 13 years have passed, and now you're an Elixir Core committer. Oh, well, no, I'm not a committer in the sense that... Not a core developer. Yeah, I, I could commit directly, you know, I, I had a, a bit commit. I I definitely do not have that in Elixir. <laughs> so sorry, that's what I that's what I meant is that you have commits in Elixir proper, not that you're a, a core member necessarily. Okay, exactly. So it's back at the beginning of August. You know, Jose Valim tweeted about a contribution that you made to the Elixir, and that's how we we noticed you. It was apparent that he was really excited about it. So. Your contribution was something that that excited Jose, which is usually something that I pay attention to because if he's excited about something, I know that there's probably something here that I should probably get excited about too. Uh, this is going to trickle down in a lot of different ways. Like for example, Livebook. He got really excited about Livebook, and I had no reason to be excited. I didn't care about NX or mathematical or uh, uh, machine learning and all that kind of stuff, but. Livebook has been something I care a lot about now. And so this is, I think, another good example of maybe this is something I can pay attention to. And so he said that your work was used to improve Elixir 1.13 and the compile time dependencies for Phoenix 1.6. So tell us a little bit about the work that you did here. What's what's the background? What was the issue? I started this job at uh, Super, a Mexican insurance company. We do Elixir uh, 100%. And that's with my like three days of experience in Elixir. So I start trying to, to understand the code base. It's, it's, there's a lot of files, lots of code. And uh, I start making some uh, features that aren't necessarily too time sensitive because I, I still have a lot of things to learn. And um, as I said, I'm very lazy. And I actually have a pretty old machine. Actually, I have two old machines. And I realized that I'm modifying a little view, just like the label of a field or something. And I just want to, to run my test. And, and Elixir is recompiling 111 files. And I'm like, there is just no way that changing a view has to, it shouldn't recompile any other file than, than the actual view. You're like at the tip of the tree there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a leaf and I'm not even changing any code. I'm just changing HTML. So it's just, yes, I understand it's generating one function, but there's just no way that 110 files are depending somehow on that. And uh, of course, you know, that's including the, the router, that's including all sorts of, of files. And I see them because some of those files take more than 10 seconds to compile on my machine. So Elixir is very nice saying, oh, you know, I'm recompiling this and I'm sorry, I'm a little bit slow. I'm like, yeah, and I'm getting sick of that. And uh, so I ask around and at Super, we're a very small team. And uh, they're like, well, no, we don't know. And, it, uh, you know, it's been doing that for a while and... Uh, Nobody seems to know. So I'm like, okay, I just, I mean, I love my team and they have the, the courage to deal with stuff that I, I just can't deal with. Uh, you know, they, they're gonna, they're gonna go through painstakingly do some, some, some features. I'm like, oh my God, thank God I'm not the one that has to do that. <laughs> Bless them, right? Bless those kind of folks. <laughs> Bless them. I mean, really, they have a, they have a patience that I, I I don't think I've ever had. So um, I start digging into it and I'm like, okay, there's got to be like this one little thing. I mean, 
that is responsible for, for this. So I started reading blog posts on how to avoid these compile time dependencies and what's going on. I mean, I've been for like 13, 13 plus years in a language that doesn't compile anything, but I've done C++ before. So I have an idea of what it, when do you need to recompile stuff or, or at least I have a mental idea. Uh, so I'm, I'm fairly certain that there's a way to, to prune it down so that touching a view will only recompile that view. But it's actually very difficult to find what's going on. So I start using this tool, Mix uh, Xref Graph. And the problem with it is that in any big code base, at least at Super, I mean, maybe it's our fault, I don't know, there's like tons of circular references. You know, one module refers to another and refers to a third one, and the third one refers to the first one. But these are all runtime dependencies. So it's just, we're naming a module somewhere, we're using it a, a function implementation, for example, and that's all fine, and, and Elixir can, can deal with that. But in some places, if you have a, a compile time dependency, then you want to try to see that those dependencies and, and Xref graph shows that to you as a tree, but it, it really isn't a tree. It's just like, just like this huge bundle of strings that are completely knotted and, and I couldn't make sense of it. At the beginning, I was looking for one particular reference of some kind. I thought that there was a, a back loop somewhere and it, it, it was trickling down, but I started trying to painstakingly analyze the, the, the output of that, that tool. Uh, found one place where, you know, if I remove that piece of code, then it wasn't 111 files anymore. It was 105. So that wasn't quite a big success, but it uh, gave me the idea that it may have been more than just one kind of weird reference that was causing this uh, this huge mess. I think it's at this point that I probably would have just given up and been like, yep, it's going to compile 110 files. <laughs> <laughs> I think most people would, in, especially if you've been doing Elixir for a while. My understanding is, I mean, I wasn't there before. I started with Elixir 1.11. But my understanding is that 1.11 already reduced the unnecessary dependencies uh, quite a bit, and 1.12 does it ev even more. So I, I'm trying to imagine what it was in like the 1.10 or, or earlier days, but I imagine it was fairly frequent to just modify one file and then boop, you know, the half of the project needs to be recompiled, even though it wasn't necessarily a legit reason. And now that uh, with Elixir 1.12, the number of dependencies goes, uh, at least the compile time dependency goes drastically down, which is which is amazing. I also remember that I think it was Phoenix 1.3 where they changed the way that the router compiles too. And there's actually two, two ways that it can be compiled. There's the prod way, which will actually be inserted at compile time. And it has all those uh, those dependencies like that, that, like in compile time versus runtime versus what is enabled for development mode which moves all that stuff into the runtime. So I, I think that was a, a, an improvement as well. And I, I want to say it was 1.3 when they did that. It could have been 1.4. But anyway, yeah, I understand that. Yeah, there's a lot of things here that we've taken some steps already, but it looks like you're, you're helping us take another big step here for reducing these compile time dependencies. I was glad to come with, with fresh eyes and say, oh, that, that makes no sense. While as probably everyone else was like, no, nah, we're used to like, 
zillions of recompilations anywhere you sneeze, yeah. uh, anytime you sneeze. So <laughs> I do have to interject. Uh, Cade commented on how at this point I just, I'd bail on that. <laughs> and I'd have to say, Mark, it sounds like you are not actually a lazy programmer that you chose to like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to press in and lean in on this. I'm going to, I'm going to dig. But I also understand, you know, we benefit so much from being lazy developers and from other lazy developers because they're like, I don't want to have to wait around for this compilation because the cumulative wasted time where I just have to sit there and stare at it and wait for it to finish, you know, even if it's like 10 seconds, it's just 10 seconds that are throwing me off my flow. It sounds like that's the pain you were like, you know, I know this can be better. Exactly. Exactly. There's this good uh, XKCD uh, where two guys are, are battling with uh, with wooden sticks and, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. the boss is like, what are you guys doing? And they're just like, oh, compiling, compiling. Yeah. And that's, you know, that, that can <laughs> okay, be the downside. as you were. Okay. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you, you mentioned fresh eyes and I think that's a good perspective too. But the other thing I, I, I don't want to forget, you, you admitted that you have like several slow computers, uh, you know, and that, that can really extend the time that you wait for compilation. I want to relate that to uh, some recent news too about uh, I think it was it's still a PR that's open to, against OTP, but the Nerves Group regularly work on low power machines, very slow machines, and they noticed several things like this too, where like code reloading was or shutting down rather shutting down OTP was taking a long time, something like thirty seconds. It was like two minutes. Oh, it was two minutes. Okay, it was two minutes for a Raspberry Pi Zero. Yeah, and 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 so they they identified that the issue was shutting down OTP. It was actually try, checking to see if any other you know modules were using this this stuff that was being shut down. And it doesn't matter though because it's like shutting down. <laughs> it was it was going through all this extra code that didn't matter. And so the the PR is to remove all that extra code during shutdown only. And the performance increase there was maybe that was the thirty seconds. I think it went from two minutes, if I remember this right. It went from two minutes on a Raspberry Pi Zero down to two seconds. It was something like that order of difference. Yeah, but they, they found it because, well, they regularly work on low-power machines. And a lot of developers always strive, <laughs> and maybe, hopefully, maybe, uh, maybe too, too much so, uh, to, to work on the latest, greatest, fastest, most cores, fastest cores, liquid-cooled, you know, whatever kind of stuff <laughs> all the time. And so we, we lose sight that like these fast computers are hiding legitimate, logical issues here that that mark you've been able to you know help us uh, identify so thanks for having us a slow computer <laughs> thank you <laughs> it's true though <laughs> elixir is a global thing right there's a large clusters of people using elixir in europe and south america and the u.s it's not just the u.s and i know not everyone in the country has the ability to buy the latest most high-end laptops and desktops and so it really does make a difference and benefits everyone if we can be more sensitive to these performance issues. So yes, thank you for this work. That was a long little <laughs> detour we took around this. Let's let's jump back in and, and kind of learn where you were going. Yeah, so just to, to mention that recompiling those 110 files, if I recall correctly, was about 45 seconds. So it's not That's painful. so long, but it's... it's I, I thought it was very painful. I managed to get five files out of that uh, big mess of uh, 111 files. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to just, you know, take 20 minutes to, to figure out where there's a, a link that I don't want. I, I want that, 
that tool to actually tell me where those links are. So this is where we need to understand that compile time dependencies really mean that if you if you have such a, a dependency, as soon as you modify that, that file, any other file that has a compile time dependency will be recompiled no matter what, even if you just add a return at the end of the file or anything. The problem is not so much with compile time dependencies, though. It's a file that is a compile time dependency if it refers to anything outside of it. So if it adds any runtime dependencies, then it's going to pass on those runtime dependencies as compile time dependencies. It's actually a bit uh, unintuitive and, and a bit weird that if you actually change one of those runtime dependencies, the main file that's a compile time dependency of other things doesn't actually need to be recompiled, right? It, it's got those as runtime dependencies. But anything that has a compile time dependency on that needs to be recompiled. So it kind of worsens the, the, the state of, of the change. So basically what you want to find is, do I have a compile time dependency on anything that has runtime dependencies? When I say runtime dependencies, I mean just within your own project. You know, you can have runtime dependencies on, on Ecto or Phoenix or anything. That's, that's fine. But on your own project, that's where the problem lies. Because if it has a runtime dependency on, on something and that something has another runtime dependency, and then you get to 111 files in 45 seconds to recompile. So those are, uh, Jose Valim calls, uh, transitive compile time dependencies. And that's all I wanted. I just wanted to know which file has a compile time dependencies on which other file that, and that other file shouldn't have any runtime dependencies, but does. And, um, I started modifying the, the code of the, I could just copied the task, uh, the XRF uh, task, and I started modifying it to, to get closer to what I wanted. It took me actually a while to understand what I wanted. But um, once I did, then I was able to to get the list of, okay, there's a link there. And there were many more links than I thought there would be. So there's actually not that many ways to get a compile time dependency. You can require a module. You can implement a behavior or a protocol. And you can, if you have in your body of your module, some code. So not inside the, the defs, but outside of them, for example, you want, I don't know, to do uh, conditional methods or, or something, or you just uh, set a module attribute and you just want to call an, another module, the module attribute is going to be uh, done at compile time. So so are you saying that mix XREF graph just didn't give you the information you needed to discover what was causing these 111 compile time dependencies? Yeah, it gave it, but it either, you said, okay, give me the compile time dependencies and only that. But the problem is that there's legitimate reasons to have compile time dependencies. So then you have to filter out, okay, which one of those are legitimate and which ones are not. And the way to see that is you check every single file that is a compile time dependency of something. And you, you say, you ask mix uh, XREF graph, does this file have any runtime dependency. If it does, then that's an issue. If it doesn't, it's legit and it doesn't cause me any trouble. So basically, if you want to understand it the, this way, the compile time dependencies you want to have are leaves. They don't branch out in any kind of way. So 
you either get the full graph and then it's it's very difficult to figure out what's what, especially that there's circular references. So you, you stop at a branch and then you've got to figure out where it starts again. Or you only have the compiled down dependencies, which doesn't give you enough. Or I guess you could go one by one and vet them. But I was like, no, no, no. I want the list of troublesome and only that. So I started uh, modifying it. And when I got my list, uh, I started pruning them. And most of them were because of behaviors. In our code base, we had uh, a module that was describing a behavior. And there was a bunch of functions that were meant for implementations of that uh, behavior. Those utility functions, if you want, they were calling other modules everywhere. So it was kind of surprising to me that the only thing I had to do was to move the behavior part into a brand new module in its own file, call it something, something dot behavior. And that was it. The link was broken. So if I needed to change the actual behavior, then yes, that's going to recompile a whole lot of files. But I can change the utility functions or I can change anything those utility functions refer to directly or indirectly, and it's all good. And that wasn't clear at all. And uh, we also had some uh, some instances where we had uh, module attributes that were listing some modules. So just, you know, having an array at compile time of modules, that's it, you're, you're done. And there were other cases where a macro was responsible for that. So, you know, macros are expanded at compile time and they can do anything and they can, they can screw up. And by screwing up, they can actually try to access the arguments you're giving it or, or something. And this way they can create a, a compile time dependency when there shouldn't be. So. Because of this, this podcast was coming and I knew I had to <laughs> file uh, some bugs because our router was in, uh, introducing a whole bunch of compile time dependencies to, to different views and to different plugs. And I was like, that's, you know, it really shouldn't be the case. And, uh, I believe it's a, it's actually a Phoenix, uh, a Phoenix issue. So I filed, uh, I filed two bugs there last night about that, where depending on how you write your pipeline, which plugs you use, or if you want to change the layout, then it creates a, a runtime dependency that is really not needed. So now I actually learned that in production, it might make sense that it's a compile time dependency, but in development, you definitely do not want that. So I fixed some of those uh, with, with some hacks. And uh, in the end, I had a code base where I went from 111 files that were recompiling all the time to one, which is what I, what I wanted. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Round of applause. <laughs> <laughs> I was very, very happy about that. And I also wanted to make sure we didn't dive back to that hell, you know, that messy, <laughs> messy ball of, of recompiling. So I modified slightly my, uh, my task so that we can run it on the CI as soon as you compile, basically, you ask graph, are there any of those problematic compile time dependencies? And um, then I, I, I went on the forum, got nearly immediate feedback from Jose Valim. That's, it's just so incredible, uh, especially coming from Ruby, where 
I think my first feature request took 10 years to be approved. <laughs> are, you, are you exaggerating? Are you I'm not serious? Sure. <laughs> I am not exaggerating. You can check it. It's uh, issue 666. Oh, my uh, <laughs> I remember the number for, for good reasons. That's probably why. And uh, yeah, it took t- after 10 years, it was, it was finally accepted. And, and, you know, the implementation was easy. It was just, do we want it in the language or not? But in all serious, no, we just got to put in a plug for Jose. Like he, I don't know how he, his phone just must be ringing off the hook with notifications because he's so fast at responding and taking care of things like all the time, every day. It's insane. It's literally insane. And I have a very strange sleep schedule where sometimes I'm going to go to bed super late or I'm going to be waking up in the middle of the night. And, you know, what else can I do than just hacking on Elixir or posting that, that you know, question that I've meant to post for the last two days. And I've not managed so far to have to post anything that he hasn't been able to answer or, or reply to in within an hour. So I have no <laughs> idea what, you know, which region of the world he lives in, in a way, because I'm trying to guess from the, the time zone. I just, <laughs> I just can't. Or maybe he doesn't sleep. I don't know. He doesn't sleep. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. It's amazing. And, and those are questions I don't even ask necessarily specifically to him. I'm just like, hey, there's this thing. I find it kind of weird. Uh, why, why is it le- this way? Is there a legitimate reason? And bang, he's the first one to reply. <laughs> it's really amazing. And he's, he's also so nice in the, the Elixir code base is kind of big and, so he's always like, oh, yeah, you have to look into this place and don't forget about this. And so he basically, I have the impression he could do the PR in, you know, 15 minutes. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, you can, you're going to have fun. It's okay. I'm going to let you have fun. But, you know, think about this and that. And it's amazing. So I, I, I discussed with, uh, with him, like, how and and some other uh, some other community members actually pitched in for the the, the correct wording, and uh, like basically we need that as a standard feature, and we need that also to be accessible for CI, so that once you're in a good state, you you know you're not going to leave that good state uh, by mistake without uh, realizing it. And there were a, a few features that that were missing when I was actually trying to dig and I was trying to understand what was going on. So I pitched to all of them. They were like, yeah, yeah, go for it, go for it, go for it. I got the green flag for, for all of them. I was super excited. So I made the PRs and uh, we're gonna, we should get them hopefully pretty soon. The summary really is, though, that there's one command you want to run, which is give me those problematic transitive compile time dependencies. And there should not be any. So you just have to figure out why they exist and cut the umbilical cord. And once you're done, you just add that one line in your CI after you've, you've compiled your project just to make sure there's nothing, nothing wrong with it. And, um, that basically is going to fix things. There's five PRs of work that we're talking about. We'll have links to all those in the show notes, but I think the two in particular that, which add these features that we just want to make sure people are aware of. It sounds like the first one, you're adding a feature of to mix XREF graph, of dash dash label. And is that label the thing that helped you find and identify where these problems were? Well, no, the dash dash label was already there. For example, you could say label, label, um, compile, and that's going to give you only that it's just going to look at the compiled 
dependencies and give you the the, the resulting graph. But um, as I tried to explain at the beginning, that is not sufficient because there's there are good reasons to have compile time dependencies. So basically, what we did was we added a new label, a new type of label, which is yeah, compile time, but the kind that you don't want. <laughs> the bad compile time. The bad compile time, because that dependency has some runtime dependencies. So either you remove the compile time dependency towards that file, or you remove the runtime dependencies that go outwards from that file. The dash dash label compile connected, is that what you're calling it? Exactly. So basically, if, if you have a dash dash com, you know, label compile, and it's that's everything, but compile connected is those ones that you don't want. They're not just leaves hanging out there and that you know if you touch those, it makes sense that the whole project might be recompiled. Those are okay. But you usually don't touch those very often. The problem was if it went outwards and was connected, runtime or not, to any other things. And for the CI, it was just... There was no way to set a goal for anything. So I'm not sure that that new flag is going to be used for anything else than that. But I don't know, maybe you don't want um, circular references or anything. Anyway, it was very easy to add for any of the output. There's, there's basically now a measure of what you get, and you can set a goal so that your CI will fail if you pass that goal. And is that a number, like a count, where I can say... Yeah. So I can slowly whittle it down, and I can say, okay, right now we have 15. We want to make sure we don't add any additional ones. Exactly. You could definitely do that. Or you could say, well, there's this one case where there is one runtime dependency, and you don't want to cut it because, I don't know, it makes the cut better, but you're okay with it because, for example, you know that that runtime dependency itself doesn't have, isn't connected to the whole tree. So then, yeah, you can say... I don't want to increase it above that one particular special case. So yeah, that's uh, possible. So if you did have it fully clean, you could say fail above zero. Exactly. That's the intent. The automated kind of code review process can say this fails because you're unintentionally, you probably didn't realize this, but you're adding a transitive dependency here and it's going to slow down the code compile for the whole project and everyone's going to be mad and they're going to come over and hit you. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Where do you work again? (laughs) Exactly. Without the violence. (laughs) The funny thing is that I was, uh, I was super happy with this and then I was like, okay, now I can, you know, I can do my, my features and actually started learning a little bit faster. And uh, I realized that I was still getting a lot of big recompiles. And I was like, but I thought I just like didn't change anything. I thought I just compiled uh, a few minutes ago. <laughs> and um, I was like, well, th- wh- what's going on? I double checked. No, there's none of those uh, transitive compile time dependencies. What's going on? And I realized that I'm rebasing all the time. And I, I like to edit my history. And uh, I mean, I make a lot of mistakes, but uh, I have got I'm way too big of an ego. So I don't want to, I don't want to show that. So before I push something, you know, <laughs> my commits are, are clean and nicely organized, but it means that I'm constantly rewriting and, and fixing this commit. And I realized that I typically will just rebase against the, uh, our master branch on, on origin. And I don't really care. I see all the 10 commits I have so far that have not been pushed. And I just rebase the, 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 the last ones or I reorder. And I realized that just 
touching a dependency was actually causing a recompile. So if I made uh, a change and I knew it was going to cause uh, some major uh, recompilation, I would I would put that in one of the, the the commits. I would recompile. Okay, it cost me thirty seconds, but I know it's done. But I realized that any time I was rebasing, even though I wasn't touching that file anymore, the rebasing process does touch it. It just reapplies the commits, and it just changed the date time stamp on that file. And that's the only thing that Elixir was actually using. So I was like, oh, well, that file seems to be stale. I was like. No, it isn't. It's the same thing. I haven't changed anything. So I, again, went online. It's like, hey, is there a good reason for this? Um, and uh, she'll say, I, I don't know, 30 minutes later, uh, no, no, no. It, it's definitely something we should uh, we should look into uh, if you want to do a PR. So I, I delved into the compiler and I basically added a hash digest for the, the, the content. So if the file appears to be stale... We now save it in the manifest what was the last version that was compiled, not only what was the date timestamp, but what was the hash digest. And we can then double check, oh, well, maybe that file has just been touched, but it hasn't actually been modified. The content is the same as last time, and then we just disregard it, and we're all good. So I made the PR that was also accepted, that worked well, and um, I thought I would be done for, you know, any kind of crazy recompilation. But I wasn't, because that was only for the .ex files, the, the, the files that are actually compiled. But the uh, .exs files are still working on uh, the date timestamp. So if you touch one of those, I don't know, mix.exx, for example, then everything is recompiled. That's okay. But if you have any commit that does that, and then you, you rebase or something... It touches the date timestamp and you've got to recompile again, although it hasn't changed. So I still have to do a PR for this. <laughs> uh, I haven't had time to do that. But hopefully that's going to, I'm going to be able to do it uh, before one thirteen is out. And uh, then I should be able to actually work and <laughs> not having to recompile all the time. So you mentioned that these hashes are stored in the manifest. So where, how does that impact me? Does it, it's just part of the build artifacts for my local dev machine. Yeah, you you don't you don't see it. That's in the uh, underscore build, and I don't even know where that file is. But now it's just going to be uh, storing that also. And uh, if you you know if you were kind of cheating and you know you just want to force a recompilation, sometimes you might just touch a file that's not going to work. So you you actually have to modify. Just add a return or something that's that's going to be sufficient. <laughs> and then your formatter removes it. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's the same hash. I can't get this recompile anymore. You've broken it. <laughs> we don't actually run uh, mixed format at uh, super and I'm kind of happy because I, I love trailing commas. <laughs> Well, we'll leave that for the next interview because I'm sure there's a lot there to talk about. <laughs> I'm not sure there is. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't think anyone can convince uh, Jose Valim to uh, to really have them in. So the config files are .exs files, right? And you need those to compile. So I wonder if your trick could be to just touch one of 
your config files and then that would cause everything to be, be recompiled. Right. And, and right now, if you touch mix.exs, everything recompiles. And, um, you know, I hope to change that. So then, uh, yeah, you can just still, uh, rm the minus rf, the, the build uh, folder, and that's also going to force a recompilation. Oh, there you go. That's the surefire way to do it. Earlier, you had mentioned one of the things that you found that caused this problem, which was around behaviors and how that was, if you just pulled out the behavior declaration into its own module, that solved the problem. Do you have any other tips about what kinds of problems you actually run into that do these things and what the fixes are? Is that a community effort where we can kind of help document like these are the patterns that cause these types of transitive dependencies? In our code base, that was the main thing. Uh, the other things were for the on the router end, but I believe that Phoenix can actually change that so there's no hack necessary on that part. And um, otherwise, it's just it, it can be a bit tricky. Just the um, as I said, the the module attributes. It can be very easy to uh, I don't know say uh, you know my list of interesting modules and then you put those in an array or, or and and you want to refer them elsewhere then you just can't do that you you actually have to uh, either use a, a trick or you just use a function and you just put your list in the body of the function that's going to work so um, the the behavior was really our our biggest uh, our, our our biggest thing because everything else it's if you require something, you know, there's no way around it. Or if you use a module, which is basically requiring requiring it and calling using, that's what you mean to do. So you are introducing a compile time dependency. You know, you, then you just have to be aware that those, those guys cannot have uh, other dependencies afterwards. Well, that's awesome. I am excited for the release of Elixir 1.13, which sees some of these benefits where we can actually start applying these features that you've worked on and brought to Elixir, where I can start using them on my own projects more easily without having to run off of a master branch or something like that of Elixir. And then also how this has been brought to Phoenix 1.6, which Chris McCord has said should be released this week. So at the time of this recording, that's something we can look forward to very soon, hopefully. So I'm really excited to see these things impacting all of us on our own projects and the benefits that you worked on. So thank you for doing that. I'm looking forward to being a personal beneficiary of that. Well, Mark, thank you for coming on and talking with us about this and helping us better understand and appreciate the work that goes into it, but also how we can use these tools and being aware that these are new tools available and that we can use them to improve our own projects. So we can reduce those painful 45 second, 50 second, 60 seconds. I've worked on projects where like you get those compilations and it's like a minute long and it's like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. So yeah, it is painful. So I'm looking forward to that. If anyone wants to get in touch with you or follow up on any of this or just follow you online and what you're doing, where's the best way to do that? Well, I'm a bit timid. I don't, uh, I don't blog most, uh, much. And, uh, but I, you know, if you send me a, a direct message on Twitter, I, I'll, I'll definitely get it. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.